Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. During today's episode, we're hearing from a tribal member who recently received a seat on a White House Environmental Council, taking a trip through the community garden, and revisiting the opening of the CPN Eagle Aviary. Citizen Potawatomi Nation member Kyle White dedicates his career as an academic to environmental justice, both as a professor and advocate. As the George Willis Pack Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan, he teaches courses focusing on indigenous people's rights regarding land and environmental sovereignty. I really want to see an energy transition where where tribes, where people of color, uh, where other underserved communities emerge as as leaders in the new energy system, as providers of energy, as uh, people that are in the highest levels of decision-making about what our energy system should look like uh, and the values that it aspires to. In early March, the Council for Environmental Quality invited him to join the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, a 26-person group designed to present people from across the United States to provide plans and ideas on fighting climate change alongside environmental justice. The types of recommendations that are going to come out of the council, you know, represent the the knowledge of people who have seen everything. You know, they've seen what fails. They've you know seen things that have worked. They've been reflecting really hard on how to make policy change that will actually impact communities at the grassroots level. In late January, President Joe Biden signed Executive Order 14008, or Justice 40, which laid out the first steps of an expansive initiative to combat climate change in the United States. It also outlined a committee to ensure 40% of those investments benefit communities affected by environmental justice. White and the rest of the council presented plans on the organization and distribution of those investments in mid-May. You know, I immediately thought, okay, it's time to really get to, to further work and to use the knowledge that I have, the skill sets that I have to take advantage of this, you know, potential opportunity for improving the, the tools and the resources and the policies that are available to Indigenous people, but also many other, you know, communities of color and underserved communities for protecting their environments, their cultures, their health, their ways of life. The council also presented improvements in the government's use of data across departments and agencies when determining the effects of environmentally hazardous practices on the most affected populations. They don't quite give us the whole picture that we need, and and certainly tribes and indigenous people, oftentimes their environmental justice issues aren't able to be portrayed within those tools. And so uh, one of the charges of the council is to find ways to improve those tools for identifying communities that are being affected by environmental racism. As part of the Environmental Council, White focuses on improvements to Executive Order 12898, signed by President Clinton in 1994, the federal actions to address environmental justice in minority populations and low-income populations.
The order's goals include using environmental justice data to create policies that better serve underrepresented populations. White sees the potential to serve tribes and their sovereignty better. You know, I think tribes are critical because we have those those governing powers, which which means that we can actually pursue uh, solutions to environmental issues that can model what it means to be a clean economy. Uh, you know what it means to have a you know good cultural relationship with the land, and so you know I think that those governing powers that tribes have are critical to modeling and demonstrating what uh, environmental justice looks like in practice. He also believes the implications of environmental damage expand beyond land rights and economic woes. And I think the executive order also doesn't do enough to really talk about how cultural activities and lifeways can also be at risk. And, and often for May tribes, those are the, the key risks that are uh, operative within you know, a, a situation where there's a mine or, or a pipeline or something else. On January 20th, President Biden also signed an executive order revoking the permit to build phase four of the Keystone XL pipeline, a point of contention for many tribes and environmental activists since it was commissioned in 2010. In March, attorneys general from 21 states sued to overturn the revocation, stating congressional desire to participate in determining the pipeline's fate. However, White remains diligent in his push for tribal sovereignty in environmental justice cases and the use of Native American land. It's important to note that you know three or four tribes, their tribal governments, have said that they don't want anything to do with that pipeline and that they've engaged in a, a lawsuit, that they are challenging whether they were adequately consulted. And so I think it's important to listen to those tribes that are you know, directly implicated and who are putting their foots down. He also noted that the Keystone XL is not the first oil pipeline met with backlash from Native nations and environmentalists. And in all of these cases, you see a similar pattern that, you know, tribal consultation is treated as a ornamental process. It's, it's not treated as a process where the consultative meetings themselves could actually change the outcome of what happens. Partnership and tribal considerations remain at the center of White's work. He finds inspiration in long-standing relationships between tribal nations and hopes they can provide solutions to environmental problems. We can do good to improve the policies and to change the laws and to uh, engage in lawsuits. At the same time that that resistance occurs, we also need to be building a true sense of what a government-to-government -government relationship is. His work on the White House Council and future actions of the Biden-Harris administration remain to be seen. Find Kyle White's University of Michigan faculty profile and publications at cpn.news backslash white. That's W-H-Y-T-E. This spring brought plenty of rain and mild temperatures to Oklahoma. It was cooler than usual, and the plants in CPN's community garden loved it. Community garden assistant Kai Deerenwater took me on a trip through what he's been working on and provided some tips for the springtime. So um, we're up here at the community garden in our um, raised bed area. We have uh, about 20 raised beds. Um, that were put together by the youth a few years back and they're um, all pretty much planted now. We have 
some Sema, Nin Sema, our uh, Nishinaabe uh, tobacco. I think it's Nicotiana rustica is the Latin name. This is a seed that came from, I think, Jijuk Foundation up in Michigan. So, and it's actually doing fairly well down here. A lot of plants that uh, are from our homelands don't do so well in the hot Oklahoma summers. But this, um, this year, it, it's actually performing pretty well. So they say if uh, your leaves are about as big as the palm of your hand, they're, they're ready. They could be harvested for medicine, for offerings and stuff. Um, and this tobacco that we have here is not like cigarette tobacco. It's way, 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 way stronger. Um, and you could definitely hurt yourself if you tried to uh, cure it and smoke it. So um, if you are growing tobacco, just be aware uh, our ceremonial tobacco is not like cigarette tobacco. It'll grow to two, two to three feet, I think, is, is how tall it could get if it's happy in, uh, you know, fully watered and fully um, fertilized. Tobacco is one of those plants where it's a hungry, hungry plant. You could throw as much fertilizer as possible. When I am growing it in the greenhouse before the frost is um, over, I give it twice as much nutrients as I do all the other plants, and it, it still grows well. My spring tip would be... Um, gardening really starts out the previous fall. <laughs> Whatever you're planning for spring or for summer, you need to prepare for the previous fall. Um, otherwise, you'll end up, you know, missing things or, or making mistakes. Um, and so the soil prep, the seed selection, the, the planning of your beds, take some thought about the placement of the plants, what crops grow together, you know, what kind of successional planting are you going to do? Are you just growing in the spring? Are you just growing in the summer? Do you want a fall garden? So if you're uh, planning a spring garden, you know, when uh, two weeks before the last frost approximately is when I start doing my bed prep weeding and tilling if that's what you do or I do a lot of no-till or minimal disturbance so I put a lot of compost over my beds I refill the topsoil I put a lot of mulch on things on paths checking your tools checking your uh, water system you know getting everything ready gardening takes a lot of planning and forethought if you want to do well and to succeed. And um, the intention in gardening is a lot for me. Um, like, what is your intention? What is your purpose? What, what are your goals um, for your garden? Another tip is keep a notebook. And if you don't keep a notebook, at least, you know, most people have smartphones and on their smartphone you can, you can make a note. And uh, I have a running note. Every time I think of something, if I see something that's going well or not going well, I write it down. And then at the end of the season, I go back through those notes and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to change this. I got to do this for next season, all those kinds of things. Um, one of the most important things to think about along with planning is your soil. Your soil health, the nutrients in the soil are what is going to determine your success or failure. So making sure you have good soil and if it's not good soil uh, finding a place where you can buy topsoil or 
amendments or fertilizers that create really good soil, what the plants grow in is almost more important than the plants themselves. Um, healthy soil makes healthy plants and healthy plants feed healthy people. Kind of cliche, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> The CPN Community Garden is one of many projects from the CPN Cultural Heritage Center. Follow the CHC on Facebook at CPN Cultural Heritage or visit it online at PottawatomieHeritage.com. We're looking back again at the Native American Speaks, a former radio show from Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department and KGFF. It ran from 2006 to 2013 with host Michael Dotson, previous Public Information Department Director. In this clip, Dotson interviews CPN Eagle Aviary staff Jennifer Randell and Bree Denham. This clip is from July 2012, a week after the aviary opened. Next month marks the ninth anniversary. Take us back to 2006, 2007. You ladies had good paying jobs in Chickasha. And what was the catalyst? How did Eagles enter your lives? You know, we go about our everyday lives and sometimes we, we don't even look up. And, and that's obviously what we were doing. We were going to work every day. And um, very suddenly we lost uh, my mother, Sherry Randell. Um, she lived with us. So it was very traumatic. Um, on the heels of that, we were presented our family a beautiful, golden eagle feather from our CPN tribe, a nation, and uh, it was a great honor for us to receive that feather. Our mother had uh, had you know involvement in the tribe, and, and they honor her with that. Uh, sometimes we don't choose our path, it chooses us. And in dealing with that grief, which was pretty overwhelming, we went on hiatus and went to every Eagle Watch that was possible for us to attend all over the state, if not uh, even out of state, and tried to photograph uh, Eagles in the wild. We met uh, Gary Sifter, which worked with the Iowa Aviary, and Victor Rubin. At Sifter time, is his last name, right? Yes. yes. And at that time, we realized that there need to be more of these facilities because I was unaware, as I'm sure most public are unaware of, that Eagles have to be put to sleep if a rehabilitator cannot place them within six months to a year of them uh, receiving them. They have to have a permanent home. I mean, there, there's no other option. If, you know, if there's not a placement for uh, at the zoo or someone else needs an education bird, then there there is no long-term placement options. I mean, there's no care facilities out there and, you know, if you can't survive... No the hospitals. That's right. You can't survive in the wild, then it's, you know, unfortunately they have to be euthanized. And so when we found that out, it was just, it was incredibly disheartening that, mm -hmm. you know, there's a situation where we need family and you know the repository is what it is. Um, we don't have any relationship. It can take years. Yes. From application to actual receipt of feathers for ceremonial purposes, or for uh, even longer for the, the an entire uh, eagle carcass. But but as much as that, that it takes so long, it's there's no relationship with the living bird. Yeah. And so that idea was just sparked in us when they when they said that we couldn't wait for the program to be over to talk to these rehabbers and to think about you know have being able to come spend time with those birds and get a better understanding of them and why we revere them the way that we do. It, it just, it, it was something that just, it had to be done. I mean, we, I, I, we literally went um, right from the Eagle Watch in the vehicle on the way home on a Sunday and called 
our grandmother, Beverly Hughes, which you've mentioned. She knows our uh, chairman very well. Very, so very well. on a Sunday evening, she called the chairman at home. At home. I, I um, wasn't real happy with her doing that, but we don't tell our grandmothers <laughs> what to do. So she, she called uh, Rocky on a Sunday, and we were able to get an appointment with him uh, the next week. So we literally, uh, it was J- January 2008, met with the chairman and vice chairman, and I will tell you, and um, I would like for everyone to know this, they never told us no on this aviary. They said, let's find a way to do this. We had an hour-long presentation they set through, and uh, I don't think I've ever been so nervous, uh, because I, we were ready for them to say no. You know, this we, is, we actually had a, a bullet, you know, list. Bullet-pointed list. A list of things. Okay, mm-hmm. when they say no, this is what we do. We, mm-hmm. we, we do this. We say no. This is why. It, if this doesn't work, you guys need to get out there and be and ex- make hundreds of thousands of dollars selling. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we pitched we pitched this to him, although there was nothing yeah. on that page when they said yes. We weren't really sure where to go from there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a whole other step. So through the grant so process. Got, and got, you sold them on the idea or they heard the idea and liked it. Uh, there probably didn't need to be a lot of selling because the idea just is what it is. And it's so right. great. So, right. They, they could see what it would do for the tribe. And that was January of 2008, and it has taken uh, four and a half years. Just pushing and pushing and, and telling us when we did get discouraged, you know, just give it another day. Give it another yeah. day. And let me tell you, it was well worth the wait. And uh, there's a lot of permitting and, and things that have to take place. So in, in hindsight, it didn't take that long. Really, it didn't. You no. guys have sort of earned a doctorate in eagle, doctorate in raptor through this project. You didn't know a lot going in, as I understand it. No. And you now are becoming authorities on what the life of an eagle is like and how to deal particularly with those that need rehabbing. And, and you probably talk eagle already. Well, you know, I don't know if, if you would say that we're experts yet. I feel like we have a lifetime to learn. Yeah. But, you know, it's amazing when you are passionate about something, how easy it is to learn. and yeah. And... Whatever whatever switch was flipped in us, um, it's just it was undeniable. There was no there was no going back. It was we're going to work with eagles now. How do we figure out how to do it? And I think when you're that passionate about something, the learning just comes easily. I mean, it, it doesn't bother me to pick up a book. It doesn't bother me to call somebody and, and say, Hey, I don't know this. I need to know. What do you have? Describe the facility for me. Well, I would say we're pretty proud of it. It um, <laughs> you should be. It, it's it, gorgeous. Thank you. It is. I can say one of a kind. We, I believe, are the first um, tribe, tribally owned aviary to put cultural significance into the plan. And it also helped the birds. We have a... Um 149 foot half circle, if you will. And this prevents the birds from having any hard corners or turns to make. They seem to be very comfortable there. And you say also, because one end of the half circle is not visible from the other, if there are birds that want to want some privacy or want to be away from other birds out of line of sight, that's available to them. Correct. And we also have designed that in the way that we can literally petition it off if we need to. Ah. Uh, but back to the half circle, that is representative of a prayer circle, mm-hmm. our powwow grounds. Mm-hmm. You enter our viewing from the east. So that was all taken into consideration. And obviously, uh, as the vice chairman and chairman completely were supportive and agree, we want people to understand the respect and how highly we hold these eagles. So it was real important for us to make this facility uh, really top top notch for them, for these eagles. That poor part of it is you can view inside from the outside because it is wire mesh. 
uh, very high quality mesh, but it's like this pop screen that I have in front of me in that uh, you can see through it. Yes, the, what we use is, uh, it's actually um, created for Eagles. It's top right three. Uh, Zoom's use it, it's Zoom approved, uh, obviously Fish and Wildlife approved. And what it does is it gives you what we wanted, a closeness to these Eagles where you feel like you're in their world and, and they're in your world. And that's really important to us. We've already had some tribal members come and share time with these Eagles uh, just for some healing and for some, some peace of mind and that's what we, we wanted to accomplish. You know, we went through an awful lot of healing when we went on, on trips and, and went to the river and spent time with those eagles in the wintertime. Um, you know, we had some really profound experiences. You know, it totally sh- shifted our focus yeah. and, and it put us on the path to where we are today. And so we wanted to recreate that so that you could feel like you were at the river right there next to an eagle and, and share that space with that bird and the same air and not be just behind glass or not, you know, not a zoo experience. We wanted that closeness to the birds and it's really important. Uh, in addition to this half circle we're talking about, you have a building that the front part of it is an, also an area for eagles that is open. And then in the middle, between it and the half circle, there are there is an enclosed area that is, I, I'm assuming, offices. It's an office like space. It doubles as a catch hall or just a space so that the birds don't get out if when we open those doors. Um, it also doubles as our exam space. We need to bring birds in yeah. and examine them, do any you know care or maintenance issues with the birds. We can do that in that space. But it also has two windows on each side so that you can view for indoors in the summertime when it's extremely hot or things like that. People can come in and look at the birds and not have stress the birds out in the heat. So it gives us two different options for viewing and that way it it also allows us to give people their space too, you know. The two open areas, you've done an excellent job putting uh, limbs and rocks and waterfalls and things like that in there. Try uh, an excellent job at recreating an outdoor feeling for the birds to live in. It's important because when these birds in captivity can live, you you know, 30 to 50 years, you know, easily. And so we had to think about enrichment for them, something that would, you know, recreate a little bit of that outdoor space and bring that to them since they can't be out in the wild anymore. Um, I can't say how proud I am of what you two are doing, McGuetch, and just best of good fortune with everything you guys try at the aviary. This is a dream that chose you and because you were so ready to become sponges and learn everything you could uh, I'm glad that it's the two of you that it chose. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. And I, I hate to keep using the same word, but it's so humbling for people to, to say those words to us. And we're very proud, but this is all about the eagle. Since this aired, the aviary has improved significantly with a better environment for its residents. Jennifer and Bree are caring for more birds and have released two back into the wild with telemetry devices. Follow the aviary online at cpn.news backslash aviary and on Facebook at CPN Eagle Aviary. Hanukkah Podcast is produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech Nikanek, Bawamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.